0: More than six months after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the smaller of the two nations has proven a worthy adversary, forcing back Russian troops and regaining previously held territory. And despite alleged annexation referendums, Russian forces seem unable to hold back Ukrainian advances. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post columnist Adam Zevo joins me from Odessa to discuss how the war has changed in the last six months what the mood is like on the ground away from the front lines, and whether there's a worry about Vladimir Putin's threats of a nuclear strike. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Adam... It's been about six months since you and I last talked about the situation on the ground in Ukraine. When we last talked, there was a, a flood of Ukrainian refugees fleeing the country, heading into Poland, heading elsewhere, coming to North America. Since we last talked, what has the mood and the the focus been for people in Ukraine as as this war, this invasion by Russia has has waged?
1: I mean, it's much more optimistic than it used to be. And that's because Russia is consistently losing this war. So, I mean, the first major victory, as everyone knows, was back in April when the Kyiv region was liberated. And then for a time, it seemed as if everything was static and that the Russians weren't able to make any headway. Or if they did make any headway, it was very small and came at a large cost to the Russian military. And so you see the division of Ukraine into two areas. You have the areas which are by the front lines known as hotspots and those areas are like hell on earth uh, those are cities like Naborizha, uh, kharkiv Nipro, and these smaller towns which have you know been recently liberated uh, and then you have other cities which are farther from the front lines where life goes on with a relative degree of normalcy and can be compared to living in israel so that's Kyiv, Lviv, and Odessa to a certain extent. Now, because the situation situation has stabilized, a large number of refugees have returned back to the country, uh, over half of them, I believe. And now it's a bit of a static war, or at least it was up until this month, when the Ukrainians pushed through and liberated the Kharkiv region and seemed to be liberating Kherson. So as of now, there's a cautious optimism as well as uh, frustration with parts of the West that don't really understand what's at stake here and are trying to force a bad peace, which would force Ukraine to concede land and would embolden Putin to commit future invasions in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to talk about some of that, the the geopolitical discussion in a little bit, but I, I am curious, you know, the, the, the recent, as you said, the, Ukraine pushed through, liberated a large section of the Kharkiv region and they liberated more than 150,000 Ukrainians. How, how is it, you know, at the beginning of the war, it was felt by a lot of people that Russia is this big global superpower, the huge military, and they were just going to steamroll over Ukraine. And I think many were surprised when the Ukrainians put up a very strong fight. And now even they're being able to push back. Back, how is it that they got to this point? Is it an overestimation of, by some of, of Russia's military capability, or is it you know military aid flooding into to Ukraine to help our allies? So there's three main factors here, broadly speaking. The first one is that the
1: Russians overestimated their own military power, and they weren't aware of how much their investments since their military had been embezzled through corruption. So the Russian army was much more poorly equipped than Putin thought. The second factor is that the Russians underestimated the level of Ukrainian resistance. Putin and his allies don't consider Ukraine to be an actual nation. They consider them to be essentially wayward Russians. And they genuinely believe this. And they genuinely believe their own propaganda and thought that Ukrainians would be happy uh, were Russians to arrive and you know what maybe that would have been true to some extent in 2010 but 2014 dramatically shifted ukrainian opinion against russia uh, especially amongst russian speaking ukrainians so cities like odessa which may have been which may have shown less resistance 10 years ago are now showing very strong resistance and then the third third factor is that i don't think putin really anticipated this level of Western resolve. And I think that that's tied to Ukraine's surprising overperformance in this war. Had the war lasted only three days or two weeks, there wouldn't have been any time or any real opportunity for this Western resolve. But the first two factors led to the third, led to a credible possibility of Ukrainian resistance, which sealed the deal for a long drawn out war that Russia could very easily lose.
0: Mhm. And so as as you say we're kind of at a, a stable place in in this war is there a sense that because of the the failing so far of the Russian military to overtake Ukraine that there could be a ramping up of conflict on the part of the Russians is it do they have those capabilities even at this point?
1: I mean they are trying to ramp it up but the question is whether or not that's going to be effective they announced their partial mobilization earlier in September. And that was in response to the Kharkiv counteroffensive. And what that means is that they've announced they're going to conscript about 300,000 Russians. Now, that's a game changer because it's been really important for Putin to keep the middle class in major urban centers complacent. So people in Moscow and St. Petersburg especially. And the best way to do that is to make the war abstract to them, to make sure the war doesn't cost them anything. So for the most part, the Russians who've been fighting in this war so far have been from poor rural areas or from ethnic regions, such as Mongolians, Dagestanis, and Chechnyans. Now partial mobilization led to a new wave of criticism because urban middle class Russians had to consider for the first time the possibility that their brothers, sons, and fathers might be conscripted and die, which led to an exodus of 700,000 men, at least, from Russia. So that's definitely a game changer in terms of domestic politics, but most of these conscripts are coming from ethnic minorities still, so that dampens that. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about what that's, what's this going to mean for Ukraine, but there seems to be more optimism in that if ukraine was able to repel an initial army of 150,000 or so, you know, soldiers who had been trained for years, the professional army, then ukraine should be able to resist a unprofessional amateur army of poorly trained, poorly equipped conscripts.
0: Looking at these these russians who are are fleeing the country who are who are looking to avoid being conscripted into this fight that they probably don't want and many russians don't want. Does that have an impact on on other places in Europe? Like where are these people going and and is there concern that, you know, they could get roped into to other conflict or other other situations in other countries?
1: Well, well that's the main problem is that they're seen as a destabilizing force in some countries. So the Baltic states and Finland have banned these Russians from coming and banned all Russians with tourism visas because they're concerned that if they allow for a ballooning Russian population within their borders, then that will be justification for a Russian invasion in the future. Because Russia's foreign policy is based on the concept of Russian world, which is the idea that Russia should go out and defend Russian speakers abroad, which usually means justification for invading foreign lands where there are Russian speakers who are parts of other nationalities. Now, in Georgia, it seems as if the Georgians have treated Russians as an economic opportunity, people to make money off of, though they have turned back Russians whose cars have Z signs or V signs, which are pro-war signs. Beyond that, I'm not knowledgeable about where the flows have really gone. uh, But what I can say is that, you know, it's a fairly large number of people to absorb into Central Asia.
0: Yeah, and and so essentially a large contingent of Russians in one particular country if they go there and they stay there that, you know, the Putin regime like he's done with Ukraine could identify them as a Russian national population elsewhere? Is is that the fear? Yeah, like so here's the thing is that some people are
1: concerned this kind of language mirrors other language against refugees. Some people have said, you know, why should we accept these people into our country, which can destabilize our country, rather than letting them stay at home and destabilize their countries? And refugee advocates have said that that's a slippery slope. You know, that can be applied to all sorts of refugee populations. But the Ruski Mir aspect of it makes it particularly dangerous for nearby countries and gives it a special, you know, level of consideration that distinguishes it from other refugee uh, situations.
0: We'll be right back. You had mentioned earlier that there there are people or organizations looking to push Volodymyr Zelensky to agree to some kind of peace deal with Putin and and give up territory that Russia has invaded and is is occupying. Who are, who, you know, I'm curious about that because you look at, you know, the global response to this has been mostly, you know, Putin is in the wrong, Ukraine has a right to defend itself and Putin should just get his forces out of Ukraine. Who is saying that there should be a peace deal and Ukraine should give up territory other than the Russians?
1: Well, it it depends, right? So anti-Ukrainian sentiment is largest amongst the far right and the far left, which both dislike Ukraine for its own reasons and both like Russia for its own reasons. This whole peace movement, in quotation marks, is primarily seen amongst the far left. And what you have is you have a group of people who they kind of reflexively hate anything Western or Western-affiliated. It's a kind of reactionary anti-patriotism that says that anything that is not West is good, and therefore Russia is good. And that then has downstream effects of people advocating for a peace deal that they think you know, we'll make the world a safer place, but they don't understand the historical context enough to understand how that makes the world a dangerous place. Uh, People have said, well, why don't we just allow Ukraine to concede some territory to Russia? And they don't understand that if you do that, then that will simply embolden Russia to invade again at a future point once Putin has rebuilt his strength. That's what happened after 2014. You know, essentially, Russia set up these puppet governments in East Ukraine and then expanded their invasion afterwards. So the question here is, well, okay, if you say, if you say that let's have a, a peace deal and you give Russia land, how is that not appeasement? How does not, that not embolden Putin to, 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 to you know, just go further at a later point? But the problem is that a lot of these people who advocate for these peace deals are often deeply historically illiterate and don't understand regional politics here and so they don't think that far. A great example of this is Elon Musk where he went on Twitter and <laughs> got into a huge fight with Zelensky, with various Ukrainian ambassadors because he said we should run a referendum in occupied territories and he's too stupid to consider the fact that millions of people have fled these territories and are unable to vote. So the people who, you know, don't want to be under Russian rule Are not in those territories. So that skews a referendum. Not to mention having a referendum in that way violates the UN's bylaws. He says, let the UN supervise it. And he doesn't realize that it's against the UN's own rules. And how are you supposed to even have a referendum when in a land occupied by a hostile power? So things like that are kind of annoying.
0: Yeah. And I I mean, looking at these referendums, these, these annexation referendums, from the outside looking in, it very much seems as, as he wrote in your piece of the national post that these are, what are you, laughably illegitimate. And I assume that they give Putin some juice on the home front that they, they say, you know, look at these people, they want to come and join Russia. It's good for propaganda, but does it speak to kind of a, a, a wider problem for Putin? The, the fact that people are being forced to gunpoint by armed election officials even as the Ukrainian military is is pushing through and liberating some of these areas?
1: I mean, it's not a big problem for him. I mean, it is in the sense that he wants to hold on to these lands. But the fact that he has to compel these people by gunpoint to vote for annexation doesn't matter to his domestic audience because they're either unaware of this fact or they will think that it's just propaganda, even though it's been widely reported upon. By international war correspondents that have, you know, in parallel, all these different war correspondents from across the world who have no relationship to each other, all of them saying, yeah, this has been compelled based on what we've seen from liberated territories. So his domestic audience, they won't know, they won't care. And as long as they have this propaganda, then it works. And as long as he's able to say publicly, oh, we're liberating people who want to be with us, that's what matters to him. The lack of enthusiasm, the lack of uh, of trust in the international community, the condemnation of international actors doesn't matter.
0: Now, one thing I wanted to to address, and it's the kind of thing that we have heard before from the Russians, it's the kind of thing that you almost expect to hear from Putin is this notion of using tactical nuclear weapons, especially as as the Ukrainian military has proven to be a worthy adversary, you know, uh, his speech referred to Hiroshima and Nagasaki as precedents. Is there a concern that Putin will go down that road? And is there a concern among Ukrainians that he'll go down that road? What, like, what is the the feeling like in Ukraine now about the possibility that one of their cities could be hit by a tactical nuke? It's hard for me to
1: say what Ukrainians feel in general, because I just inhabit a very small piece of it. You know, I'm just in a with a circle of friends who represent part of a Descent society. Obviously, the Ukrainians do fear to some extent that a nuclear weapon will be used. At this point, I think there's a general sense of exhaustion. People say, well, what more can be done to us? You've bombed the hell out of us. We've seen our cities destroyed. There's a level of acceptance. They say, yeah, you know, do your worst. We'll keep on resisting. As to whether or not it's likely that he'll use nuclear weapons, it's hard to say. Because when you try to calculate likelihood, you try to estimate, you try to assume that you have a rational actor in play. But the problem is that Putin's so wrapped up in his propaganda and his concept of himself as being some, you know, lights for Russian society who will reestablish the Russian empire, that it's hard to know what his mind is like. And it's hard to model his actions as a rational actor. There was a great article in The Atlantic recently arguing that he wouldn't use nuclear weapons because his allies wouldn't support it. That there would be pushback from China and from India. Not that these are like full allies, they're more kind of neutral. But, you know, if you, if Russia breaks that taboo, then that incentivizes other countries to nuclearize as well. That means potentially a nuclear Japan that increases the risk of nuclear conflict between Pakistan and India. And so all these other countries, which are not pushing against Russia right now would push against Russia if it took that step, presumably I mean, and then that's factoring that's before you even factor mutually assured destruction and like the end of the world
0: <laughs> now, I mean, you mentioned you're in odessa, you're kind of with a, a small group of of friends as you as you spend time there, what is the mood like on the ground? you mentioned exhaustion? is it just kind of resigned to the the fact that this is kind of an ongoing conflict, that they hope that it stays stable or that Ukraine, you know, gains back more territory. Do they just kind of want this to be over?
1: I mean, of course they want it to be over, but they're living their lives as normally as they can until that happens. And so the mood in Odessa is actually fairly normal and you could be forgiven for forgetting that there's a war. Uh, people don't pay attention to the air raid sirens anymore. Like they'll, the air raid sirens will happen and people don't even flinch uh the opera has reopened uh i actually brought my mom to Odessa last week <laughs> uh she wanted to come and so we went to the opera together and at the very beginning of the opera they have an announcement and they say if there's an air raid siren you will be escorted down to the bomb shelter and if the air raid siren lasts for more, for more than an hour you can use your ticket for another show uh people go nude beaching people do whatever they'd like and then when things get spicy, they're realistic about it. So last week, uh, Russia started sending in kamikaze drones. The first one actually hit an administrative building the very morning I came to Odessa, because I had been traveling abroad for a month before that with my mom. So I'm you know trained with my mom and I come in and you know I open Twitter and it's like, oh, kamikaze drone. And so the Russians sent in kamikaze drone after kamikaze drone, and then they got blown up by the anti-air defense system, which has since adapted. So, you know, there'd be some nights where I'd be falling asleep and i just hear an explosion in the distance or I'd be walking along the seaside and hear a boom. And it's just the anti-air defense system shooting down another kamikaze drone or another missile. And, you know, after the first few times, you get used to it because you know that the statistical chance of it hitting you or it impacting you is very low.
0: Is there any expectation among people there that that they could optimistically see a resolution in the next six months, the next year? Or are they, are they kind of resigned to this being a long-haul conflict?
1: It changes week by week and region from region. So last week, when the kamikaze drones were coming in, people on the whole were not that concerned about the certain level that they saw. But because there had been this partial mobilization, and Odessa had been identified as a city that needed to be annexed by the Russians, there was a concern that things were going to get worse. So even though things were fine, some people were concerned about what the future might look like and if some hard times would come up ahead. Now that the Russian front is collapsing on the southwest, there's a lot of optimism. And there's a huge distinction between the southwest and the east that needs to be pointed out. So the Ukrainians managed to break through in the east by essentially tricking the Russians into thinking that they were going to attack in the southwest so the Russians took their best troops and moved them all to the southwest and then the Ukrainians broke through a poorly defended line and kicked the Russians out of the Harkiv oblast so they were winning against you know a lightly defended line in the southwest you have a whole bunch of you know strong reinforced soldiers and the Ukrainians are still winning uh, now, granted, those soldiers have been deprived of some support because they're stuck on the wrong side of a river, and the Ukrainians have been bombing bridges and boats trying to supply these soldiers. But even so, they're a much more forbid- formidable force than what we see in the East. And so if like the Southwest is still faltering for Russia, then it seems like Russia might fold in a much more dramatic way in the next few months.
0: Well, I know that you know people across the world are are keeping a close eye on this conflict and I can imagine that that's the same there in Ukraine. Adam, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. 103 is produced by Tyler Dawson, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest Adam Zevo. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.